church, would you stand with us as we worship this morning, declaring who God is? When all I see is the battle, you see the victory. Yes, thank you, Lord. When all I see is the mountain, you see the mountain move. As I walk through the shadow, your love surrounds me. There's nothing to fear now, for I am safe with you. Let's sing it out, church. Let's declare. So when I fight, I fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. In every fear, I lay at your feet. I sing to the night. Oh God, the battle belongs to
Psalm 21, verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let's do that together this morning. There's a name that levels mountains. Calls out highways through the seas. I've seen its power unravel battles right in front of me. Oh, yeah. There's a faith that stands defiant. Oh, yeah. Sends Goliath to his knees. I've seen his praise unravel shackles right off my Just the mansion makes a way, giants fall and strongholds break, and there is healing. That's the power that I claim, it's the same that rose and rage. There's no power like the mighty name of Jesus.
us, Lord. Yes, God, we know there is power in your name. And we know that we can cling to the hope we have in you. We know that we can cling to your faithfulness in all the times that you've surrounded us with your love and your grace and your
privilege and honor to be with you. My name is Jordan Baker. I bring you greetings from Grace Church across the hill in Simi Valley. Uh, we are 30 minutes away, and uh, it is a pleasure to be with brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, that we worship the same Lord and Savior and the same God. Isn't that right? So this is exactly uh, so happy to be here. Uh, I, was, I had the privilege of being here about three years ago in August of 2020. Uh, it was a little bit different time then. Uh, I didn't see as many faces uh, in here. I think I preached to a dot in here, and some of you were outside. But uh, it's a privilege to be back because Dave Hurtado, your beloved pastor, is a good friend of mine from college days. We Missed each other a little bit when he went back north, but have connected coming back down here. I appreciate your pastor greatly. Uh, he is a passionate man. He is a uh, honest guy. I really appreciate Dave's feedback, his honesty. And he's courageous. Not only, I, I have a phrase that anybody who preaches God's word regularly is a friend of mine. So he is courageous in preaching God's word. Does he not? Does he not preach the whole counsel of God's word? But he also roots for God's team. I shouldn't say God's team, the one God roots for in the 49ers down here with LA Ram fans, right? Like you guys are fans-ish down here when they win. So it's just a privilege to be here. And I am here with my beloved bride of 22 years right over here. Her name is Erin. Uh, that's right. And uh, today, after we finish second service, we're going to keep going up north on the 101, and we're going to go to Cambria to celebrate uh, that together. Our three daughters are at camp this week. Praise the Lord for so many reasons. <laughs> so the house is quiet. We're getting a little taste of empty nesting, and I like it and I don't like it all at the same time. Well, I love sports like Dave does, and sports have always been fascinating to me. And mostly I have engaged in team sports, but there's other kinds of sports that have been intriguing, yet I'm not sure I'd participate in them, like, like climbing, rock climbing or climbing to Everest. So those are things that I go, oh, that's nice that somebody else does. Uh, like a, a minor heart attack. We can say you had a minor heart attack. That's a heart attack somebody else has, right? Like if you have one, that's a major thing. So, so these kind of extreme sports are nice when other people do. And uh, 
I, one of the, the sports that's very intriguing is that of rowing. Or if you're hip, you call it crew. By the way, show of hands, who's ever rowed like, uh, uh, athletically before or competitively? Who's been a rower? That's right, because it's totally out of vogue now, but it used to be a very, no one, by the way, if he, no one raised their hand. Uh, it used to be a pretty popular sport. In fact, it was one of the first Olympic sports. And one of the things that they say about rowing, again, what I've heard, I've never actually done it. I've done it at the gym, but I think that's different. According to Daniel James Brown, who wrote about it, rowing is one of the toughest sports since once it starts, there are no timeouts and there's no substitutions. And it assaults, it calls upon the limits of human endurance that comes from the mind and the heart and the body. In fact, they say, and they say, is uh, that if you do a race, a rowing race that lasts six minutes, it's as much exertion, it takes as much physical toll as playing two full basketball games back to back. Which means you can get a lot of exercise in in six short minutes, that's kind of nice. In 1936, a rowing team did the unthinkable. Go back to 1936, the Olympics were in, in Germany. There was a lot of growing tension globally. And a small group of nine young college students from the University of Washington were formed together in a team of rowers, a, a crew. And they, they took on the world in, in a lot of ways. They, they bested those at Cal Berkeley who were world-renowned rowers. They took on all the East Coasters who had grown up with lots of money and their parents were bankers and, and Wall Street tycoons. And these guys all came from loggers and, and these guys were, were kind of the salt of the earth, farm boys. In fact, they went on and they, they competed against those in Oxford and Cambridge and and took on all comers, and in fact, uh, in his book, I don't know if you've read this book, The Boys in the Boat, Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold in the 1936 Berlin Olympics, Daniel Brown paints a compelling picture of what it took for these nine men to move from good to great, from competitors to winners, from winners to legends. In fact, they, they went on to win the gold in record time, and, and there is a, a simple reason why that happened, and the simple reason is this, they were totally committed. Total commitment to the task at hand, total commitment to each other and for the purpose of achieving this goal. Each member of the team had to demonstrate determination, optimism, and grit. Striving together, pulling together as one, and giving everything they had for one another, bound together forever by pride and respect and love. In fact, Daniel Brown in his book, The Boys in the Boat, he said this, he said, yes, each member, each of these nine members had to have physical prowess, they had to have physical ability, that is sure, but something else stood apart. They had to have the ability to disregard their own ambitions, to throw aside their ego over the gunwales, to leave it swirling in the wake of his shell and to pull, not just for himself, not just for glory, but for the other boys in the boat. Now notice total commitment here. Uh, there's a little differentiation between total commitment and hard work. 
Each man certainly had to work hard, but working hard during the race wasn't enough. I, I find myself, I define myself as decently competitive. In other words, if you and I were going to play a game right now, I don't care if it's Uno, chess, or basketball, I'd want to win, and I'd probably cheat just a little bit. But I, I mean, within the realms where it's still honoring to the Lord, but I'd probably cheat just a little bit. I mean, no refs would see it as I pulled you, you know, whatever. But, but if, if we were to compete right now, and, and you were, if I had any competitive rowers in here, if we got into a lake and started rowing, I would work hard. I'd want to beat you. And I know what you're looking. You're looking at me, you're like, yeah, this guy is a pretty competitive rower. I mean, I have the, I get it, I get it. I look like I've done a lot of rowing in my life. I haven't. It's just the way God's built me. And if we got in that boat and you're a competitive rower, you would, you would go and go and go. And I'd go as hard as I could for about 30 seconds, right? At 30 seconds, I'd work hard and then I'd start to break down. My lungs would, would burn, my arms would burn, and pretty soon I couldn't keep going because I have not committed to doing it. I would work hard in the moment, but I lack this overall commitment to the sport that would actually bring greatness. And I, to, to be great in rowing, you have to have overall commitment to train, to eat, to prepare for the race. And here is what we're gonna talk about this morning, half-hearted commitment any of these nine that won the gold medal in Berlin breaking records, any of these nine who are half-hearted wouldn't cut it. Half-heartedness wouldn't be enough. Almost dedication would not only fall short, it would leave the whole team in a position of loss. This morning we're going to talk about the total commitment that's required in following our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Total commitment, where almost obedience is a total loss. Where, where half-hearted, so, sort of, kind of getting there, actually falls, falls, uh, falls short of God's glory and is not at all what God calls us to. So God wants wholehearted followers. Here's the big idea this morning that we want to point out. God desires, and notice here, these two words matter, right? He desires and he demands. He makes demands, but he wants this. He wants it for us because it's for our best. He desires and demands wholehearted obedience. And I'll add to that wholehearted pursuit of him. Wholehearted pursuit. And anything less than that, anything less than that falls short of his glory. And you know a verse in scripture that says, for all have sinned and fall short of his glory. In other words, falling short of God's glory is equal to sin. And so we're going to talk about this total commitment through this lens of 1 Samuel chapter 13. Now, I just want to clarify one other thing because I want to not run the risk of saying you, you can earn anything. I'm, I'm not talking about earning. Can we, can we clarify that? You cannot earn a right standing with the Lord. You cannot work hard. You not, cannot give enough that would make you acceptable to God. So we're not talking about earning, but the Bible isn't opposed to effort. We work. God wants wholehearted obedience. He wants us to love him with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. In fact, Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, it's by God's grace that I work harder than others. God's grace is a free gift, unmerited favor that, that 
saves me, that gives me life, but it also empowers me and it, it, it enlivens me to work for God's glory. Working hard by grace comes out of a total commitment to Christ who calls us to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and requires the kind of commitment that Luke 9 says, right? You know this verse that says, deny self, take up your cross and follow him. Nothing in those is half-hearted. Nothing in those is kind of, sort of. Nothing in those is almost. It is complete. So here's the key question. One of the key questions we want to wrestle with this morning, and you'll notice it here, why is wholehearted commitment more important than effort or than, than, than working? And why is it so difficult to fully commit to something or anything? Why is it so much more common to be half-hearted worshipers? Why is it so much more common to be half-hearted in our life instead of fully committed to something? In fact, uh, I was talking to, this is not even in my notes, but I was talking to a girl uh, yesterday, a 19-year-old, we were at a barbecue, and uh, she had been dating a, a boy for two years, and I'm a pastor, so I'm asking her the question, because I'm a pastor and a dad of teenagers. I said, have you, uh, you guys talked about marriage at all? After two years of dating, 19 years old, and she goes, what? Like marriage? Like, I'll think about that when I'm 30. Like, I'll think about that way, like we're dating now, we're, we're two years in, we're gonna live together, the whole thing. I'm not even thinking about that. I'm not ready to commit to that. We have a hard time as, as fallen creatures committing wholeheartedly to anything. We'd rather hedge our bets. We want to keep some back. What God is calling us to today, what we're going to see in 1 Samuel 13, is he wants us to go all in, to yield ourselves completely. And when we do, just like, listen, just like when you finally commit to one person, one spouse in marriage for 22 plus years, praise the Lord, there is great joy. Amen? Listen, if you're a teenager here, marriage is way better than dating. Way better, way harder, but way better. All right, that's just, that's for free. So here's how we're, what we're gonna do. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel 13, and we're gonna try to answer these questions from the lens of King Saul. And, I, and I, I'm gonna keep re- referencing this fact. I think sometimes Saul gets a bad rap uh, and maybe sometimes you go, ah, like if I were in Saul's shoes, would I have done the same thing? But we're going to look at this plight of King Saul, who was a half-hearted man. And because he was half-hearted, he kept falling short. He was miserable, fearful, and, and always paranoid about others. He just couldn't rest and find joy because he couldn't totally commit to the Lord. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we don't have time necessarily to read all these sections, but I'm going to summarize some of them. And we're going to talk about five ways that half-hearted obedience shows itself to the life of Paul, or Saul. Half-hearted pursuit and how half-heartedness falls short of God's glory. So the first is this. Half-hearted obedience trades on others' faith. 
Half-hearted obedience trades on others' faith. Now, here's, here's what you have to do. If you're new with us, uh, or just for my sake, let's summarize where we've been in 1 Samuel very quickly. At the end of Judges, there was a, a phrase, a word. It says, in Israel, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. That was the makeup of the culture. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Does it sound, sound common today? Do we live in a culture today that everyone's kind of doing what's right in their own eyes? If they see, they think it's right, they think it's good, they think it's true for them, they're going to do it. We, we live in a very similar culture as what we find in 1 Samuel. So you have this where God then provided a priest to lead them. And we had Eli the priest and his charlatan sons, Hophni and Phinehas. You remember studying that and, and how Israel was uneven and, and they weren't really worshipers and, and Hophni and Phinehas were sleeping with women in the temple and they were extorting money and, and goods from people. It was just terrible. Then God provided them finally Samuel. Samuel, this man who would actually lead them faithfully for 40 years. And for 40 years, there was stability. 40 years, there was faithfulness. 40 years, there was rest from the arch enemy, their mortal enemy, the Philistines, who were encamped on their east side or west side. And so then what happened was, you'll remember this, what Pastor Hurtado or Pastor Dave went over, is, is Israel found themselves at the end of 40 years saying this, uh, that's all great and all. It's nice to have peace, it's nice to have rest, it's nice to have faithfulness, that's not enough. You know what we really need? We want to be like every other nation, so give us a what? Not just a, any king, we want a king that, that looks like every other nation. Now here's the irony of that. What was the irony of that request? Who was the king of Israel at that point? God! And so that request says, God, you're not enough. Your promises are not enough, you don't give us enough, you, we, don't, we don't think you measure up, and so we wanna be like every other nation. Still a problem today? Absolutely, for churches, for individuals, for families, still a problem today. And so, they, so God actually answers their requests. Understand this, sometimes when God gives us what we ask for, it's not for our good. It's not for our good. He goes, fine, I'll give you a king. And he says, I'll give you not just any king, I'm gonna give you a king that you want. Who was Saul? Tall, good looking, uh, looked good in armor. Man, like when Saul walked in his armor, they're like, man, that's a king, baby. That's a king like every other nation. That's a king that, that puts every other nation to shame. Except Saul was not a man of character. And so the, the people always were uneven. The nation was uneven, and, and God even, they gave him, he gave them what they wanted. It wasn't for their good. Now, there's two passages, real quickly, that you need to understand. The context of 1 Samuel 13, it makes sense when you understand these two factors. First, in 1 Samuel 10, verses 7 to 8, Paul, uh, God told Saul, listen, I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be with you. Go at it. Go defeat the Philistines. After you do that, wait seven days. Samuel will come. He'll make an offering, and then he'll tell you what to do. That's really important. Then at the end of 1 Samuel 12, what, what you just heard last week probably, is that, is that God indicted the people for asking for a king. He goes, you screwed up royally. You messed up royally. However, I'm a God of grace, and so I'm going to give you grace. And if from now on you commit to fear me alone and love me with all your heart, I will be your God and I'll be for you. Isn't God so gracious? And so he goes, but it's all in, baby. you got to be all in with me, and half-heartedness won't do. 
And so the start of 1 Samuel 13, here's what happened, is Saul assigns Jonathan. Jonathan is his son. And what you'll see in the rest of 1 Samuel is that Jonathan was faithful. So Jonathan starts and he takes on the Philistines. He wins victories. He comes back and they celebrate these victories. Now, it wasn't so uncommon that a king would assign a general to do so, but what Saul was doing was trading on Jonathan's faith. Half-hearted devotion to the Lord trades on others' faith. What do I mean by that? That means we all must stand before the Lord alone. Someday we're going to stand before the Lord in judgment. Right now we stand before the Lord and we cannot live vicariously through others' faith. I can't say I'm walking with the Lord because I go to the right church, I hear the right messages, I sing the right songs, or, or that I trade on the family name. I tell my girls all the time, it doesn't matter that you're a baker, you can't trade on your mom and dad's faith, you have to stand before the Lord alone. And so, and so we, don't, we don't have a faith that lives vicariously through others, we have a faith that has to stand alone, and that's what Paul, or sorry, Paul, I'm gonna do that like 10 more times, uh, uh, what Saul struggled with. Second is this, half-hearted obedience is exposed in trials. Half-hearted obedience is exposed in trials. Here's what happened in the story. Jonathan had his victories against the, the Philistines, and you know what the Philistines said? Ah, you beat us. Well, we're just gonna go home. We're gonna take our ball and go home. They go, nope, we're pretty ticked, and we're gonna rally the troops, and so what do they do? Jonathan was faithful, Saul was faithful through Jonathan, and all of a sudden the Philistines said, let's go get them, boys, and they gathered in mass. The text says they were like the sands of the seashore. I mean, they, they were just multitudes, and they surrounded Saul and his, and his 3,000 soldiers in this small city. Now listen, sometimes we think, man, God, I've been faithful to you. I walked obediently with you. I did what was righteous. I did what was right. And things are going well. Have you ever had that? You're like, I did the right thing. I paid the right amount of tax. I was good to the customer. I didn't lie. I didn't steal. And yet it hasn't gone well for me. That's where Saul found himself. They finally did what was right, and now they're surrounded. But listen, here is what life is promised to you, believer. Did God ever say, follow me, and I'll give you peace and rest and ease in this life? Never, never, never. Never, not once. In fact, what did he say? You're going to have trials that he brings in your life. Why? To grow you and mature you. Second, he's going to bring persecution. If you live in a right way, you will be persecuted, and you will have constant opposition in the world and against our mortal enemy. And so what happened was they, were, they weren't prepared for that, and the people started to react in fear. They started to hide themselves in caves and tombs and cisterns, and, and Saul began to be afraid. That leads to the third one. Half-hearted obedience seeks to appease rather than trust the Lord in worship. Here's where the story takes a hard turn. Now, I want you to put yourself in Saul's shoes. Uh, Good-looking guy, tall, strong, looks good in armor, and now he did what was, he thought was obedient, and now he's surrounded. His people are deserting. They're hiding. He doesn't know what to do. And, uh, and, and not only that, he's waiting these seven days, and after seven days, Samuel didn't show up. 
And so what did he do? He said, instead of trusting God at his word, he goes, I'm gonna take matters into my own hands, I'm gonna offer a sacrifice. And you think, ah, oh, that's pretty good. I think when we're in trouble, we should offer a sacrifice, except he was trying to appease. He was trying to, to say, if I do this in a quid pro quo way, God, I'm doing the work, do your thing. And so he tried to appease God instead of worship him. And the question that we have to ask every day is, are we gonna trust God at his word, obey him completely, or are we going to uh, do most of what he calls us to do, but withhold an opportunity to do what we determined is best. Here's what Saul, here's what half-heartedness looks like. It looks like high religious activity, but low fear of the Lord. Disobedience cloaked in religiosity. This is somebody who comes on Sunday morning, and I watch, I love worshiping with you guys. So fun singing. Hey, by the way, you said, you sang Ebenezer. Thank you. You know Ebenezer comes out of 1 Samuel, right? A, a stone of remembrance. I was like, oh, you did it, yay, okay. Like, and I love it. You're raising hands and you're worshiping together. Half-hearted religious activity and worship looks like you raise your hands and you sing praises to God and you leave here and you cuss out your kids and you, you middle finger something. No, I shouldn't say that. Anyway, you do something wrong to people who cut you off on the road and, and you go back to your life as normal. That's religious, that's religiosity. That's trying to appease God instead of worship him. And that's what Saul was doing. And remember this. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says this. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. In other words, what does God want us to do in worship? Obey him completely. Because obedience comes out of full trust. Obedience comes out of saying, I'm gonna obey you even when it doesn't make sense, even when if I could just hedge it here or take matters in my own hands, it will ease the pressure. I'm gonna obey you. If we wanna be wholehearted worshipers of the Lord, full obedience is a must. Well, that leads to the fourth here. Half-hearted obedience continually shifts the blame. This is so important. Uh, this is so important. Uh, so I love the text. The text says this. He's supposed to wait seven days. He didn't wait the full seven days. He waited most of the seven days. But as the sun was setting, he goes, ah, I'm desperate. I'm just going to take matters in my own hands. I'm going to do it my way. He offers the sacrifice. Once the sacrifice was done, doop -a -doop -a -doop -a -doop, here comes Samuel, as it happens. Samuel comes in. He goes, he goes, he asks this question. It's a question you never want to hear from your parent or a police officer. What have you done? What have you done? Ah! And Samuel did what his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam did. You remember, you remember back in the garden? This is so important. Remember back in the garden, Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve, perfect, marriage, naked, all those kind of things. Anyway. They were, they were confronted by the, the serpent, and, and Eve goes, oh, yeah, well, good. And she eats, and she gives some to her husband who was with her, and he eats, and God confronts them, and he goes, God goes to Adam, what have you done? You remember his response? What was Adam's response? The woman you gave. 
me. Who did Adam blame for his sin? His wife and his God. Here was the bus coming down. He's like, threw him under the bus, right? It's my favorite verse. It's like our life verse. The woman you gave me, I'd say that all the time. Anyway, not to be outdone, Saul said, look, look, listen, here's what happened. Here's what happened. We're surrounded. I don't know if you know that. Multitudes of Philistines ticked, ready to kill us. Not only that, our own people deserted us. They started running away. And Samuel, you want to know something? You weren't even here. You said you were going to be here. And you didn't show up. So I forced myself. I forced myself against all those things. I forced myself to make these sacrifices. Samuel, uh, uh, Saul failed to take responsibility. Listen, to be a wholehearted worshiper of the Lord, you must take responsibility for your sin. We self-justify, we make excuses, we want to pacify, we shift it to other people. You must take responsibility. Every time I do marital counseling with a couple, they sit down in front of me and you know what they who does, when I sit down with a wife, who does she think needs to change in their marriage for her to be happy? Uh-huh. And she leaves, she goes, oh, let me tell you all my husband does, can you help fix him? She leaves, I talk to the husband, he goes, ah, you tell me tell all those things my wife does, can you fix her? And you point the finger somewhere else, do you know who needs to change in your marriage to become joyful? You. If you try to change your spouse, do you know what it's called? It rhymes with Manipulation. Uh, it's manipulation and, and controlling. So, so we take responsibility. It's what Saul failed to do. He didn't take responsibility for his actions. He blamed it on everybody else. And here comes the consequences. This is the fifth thing here. Half-hearted obedience is ultimately rejected. If you have your Bibles, read with me. If you don't, you can look on the screen. But... He said this, so I forced myself, this is in verses 13 to 15, and offered the burnt offering, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly, you have not kept the command of of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept the word that I commanded you. Now, man, it seems awful harsh. Saul was so close, almost obedience. I mean, he was off by a few minutes if he would have just waited. He offered a sacrifice. He didn't even do something wrong. He didn't get drunk. He didn't go and cuss anybody else. He, He offered a sacrifice to the Lord And Samuel said, that is half-hearted, almost obedience, which is deadly. I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. I'm going to transfer it to somebody after my own heart. It's very sobering to think of that because, again, I think sometimes you think Saul could have got a bad rap, but he didn't because we understand the nature of God. God will always uphold his glory. Isaiah 48, 11 says, God does not share his glory with anyone. He upholds his glory. God demands a people after his own heart who love him and are with, uh, love him with all of who they are, including complete commitment. And anything less 
falls short of his glory and thus his standard. There's two nagging questions we leave with because what God is gonna do is he's gonna replace Saul with David. God says, man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart, I found a man after my own heart, it's David. But listen, here's the problem with the story, right? He's looking for somebody after his own heart. Did David fulfill that? Yes and no. David was a man after God's own heart until he wasn't. Bathsheba, murder, adultery, failure. So it wasn't David, necessarily. And then here's the other question that we'll leave with. What do we do knowing that, when we, that we fall short of the standard and demand of total commitment? What do I do? You're saying I need to be totally commitment, I need to be all in, but man, I'm telling you, sometimes I'm half-hearted, sometimes I don't go all in. What do I, what do, I do? You told me I'm not supposed to earn it. I can't earn it, so, so where are we? This leaves us with the best promise we can think of. What is the solution for our half-heartedness? Ready, it's what God promised. We find hope and grace in a fully obedient, holy, satisfying King, Jesus Christ, amen? I mean, that is who fulfilled the commitment, who, filled the, who fully satisfied the requirement that God had of total commitment? Not us, not Saul, not David, but Jesus. Who God was satisfied with his life and his death and his resurrection. Who God poured out all the wrath reserved for all of my sin on him. So that when God looks at me, he doesn't any, any longer see me when I put my faith in Christ, he sees Christ's righteousness given to me. Right? And then, listen, it's not my total commitment that saves me. It's not my total commitment that saves me, but because I am saved, because God pursued me, because he gave me Jesus Christ, vicariously on my behalf, substituting himself for me, giving me his righteousness, because he's done all that work, what does God say? Now yield yourself to me completely. Trust me completely. And if you do, not only is he pleased and glorified, I'm telling you, you will find this thing that was so lacking in Saul's life, it's joy. Joy. My daughter is 16. She learned to drive about six months ago. And you know, remember learning how to drive, there's these unprotected left turns. And uh, you either have to wait or you have to go. You can't stay in the middle. And we, we, would, we have one by our house and she'd kind of creep out in the middle of the, the lane there. And I said, when I tell you to go, you gotta go. And so we got out to the middle and I said, go baby girl, go. I said it nicely, and she hesitated, and she did it her own way, and she stopped, turned red, turned green, she's in the middle of the street. She starts to break down, she starts to cry, she realizes she's in a bad way, and we, we ended up getting out of there. I said, I said, sweetheart, you have to trust me. You have to trust me. I know what's best for you, trust me, and if you do what I'm calling you to do, it'll be good for you. That's what God is calling us to. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, trust him completely. Total commitment breeds the greatest amount of joy. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, yield yourself to him. Doing it your own way, even, even in semi-ways, even in little ways, you think, ah, but I'm kind of obedient. Kind of obedience leads to misery. 
commit ourselves completely to Christ, the fountain of living waters, and he will bring us joy. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to learn from you, to learn from an Old Testament figure in Saul and see the same exact things that we deal with today. Thank you that we have a perfect savior, a king who fulfilled all righteousness, who satisfied your requirements, who demonstrated total commitment. So even when we fail, you are faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
a seat. Thank you, worship team. And thank you, Pastor Jordan, for that very awesome message. I can really relate. I, too, made my daughter cry when I taught her to drive. Now, my son was different. I made him angry. So I remember telling him, brakes. And he looked, instead of pushing the brakes, he goes, why? Just like really mad. And I, it was a little different conversation. <laughs> Anyways. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, maybe you're visiting or you've just been checking us out, I want you to know that you can receive Jesus and be saved today before you leave here, um, before you go, if you choose. Your salvation, your position in heaven can be assured. Um, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you are justified, and it's with your mouth that you are saved. Um, so if you're here today, there's two things in that. There's like a mental um, part of that, a heart part of it, where I believe in my heart that Jesus' death on the Christ was sufficient to pay for my sins. I give up on trying to live my way and the world's way, and I'm just going to surrender and accept what he did for me. There's the verbal part. I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. Have you ever done that? Well, let's do it together. Wholeheartedly repeat after me. Jesus is Lord. Awesome, was that hard to say? No, okay. So if for the very first time today, you believed in your heart and you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, would you go to the counter afterwards and let them know that, hey, I just, accepted Jesus as my savior and I want to start living his way and I have questions and all that we want to be there to help answer that if you're online we go to campcc.net click on next steps fill out that little form there and we will get back to you with um, some information about what it means to follow Jesus okay we're going to get back to the Lord um, as you can probably tell from my red face and my raccoon eyes I was at Friathon all week yeah it was an awesome time. We had, uh, we took 96 high school students. Um, yeah, we had nine of them pray for the first time to receive Jesus as their savior. Yeah. Um, we baptized 10 kids in the lake. One of them, I, uh, I baptized two of them and one of them was really, or they're both very special, but uh, one of them was the daughter of a student who I baptized in that same lake years ago when I was a youth pastor. So it was just cool to full circle. I've been doing this since I was 25 years old. Now I'm an old man. All right. <laughs> anyway, um, when you give to us, it helps us be able to do things. I know many people gave to Friathon in order to provide scholarships. So I just want to thank you for your generosity. Um, you probably saw on the screen how you can give three ways. The offering box. Um, you can go online. Um, scan that QR code or go to campcc.net or you can text the amount you'd like to donate to 84321. All right, before we go, let's check out what's coming up next at CamCC. Hey, good morning, CamCC. I'm Ed Lane and I serve in the worship ministry here at church. I am so glad you are here with us today. If today is your first time with us, welcome. We have a gift just for you, a $5 Starbucks gift card for that black tea lemonade you love so much. All you do is grab a connection card, fill it out, and take it to the welcome counter out there in the lobby. Or you can scan this with your phone and let the welcome counter know that you filled it out digitally and they will still hook you up. If it happens to be your second time visiting us here at church, welcome back. 
Check this out. You get a $10 gift card to In-N-Out Burger. We will also invite you for an all-you-can-eat dessert with our pastors, elders, and staff. Easy peasy. Just let us know it's your second time out there at the welcome counter and it's yours. Or if you're watching online, go to camcc.net slash next steps. Saturday, July 15th, ladies summer evening hike from 6 to 8 p.m. Close out a summer evening as you listen to the birds and enjoy a warm evening walk in nature. Hike around three to four miles, moderately difficult, shouldn't be too bad. Contact Allie Smith to sign up at allison at camcc.net. August 11th to 14th, Middle School Catalina Summer Camp. Enjoy kayaking, snorkeling, hiking, games, prizes, and more on the beautiful island of Catalina. This will be a week you do not want to miss, so be sure to register right now. That includes you, incoming sixth graders, as well. At camcc.net slash Catalina, or more info, contact Jacob at camcc.net. To stay in the loop of what is going on at CamCC, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. For more info on any of these events, go to CamCC.net. What a powerful message that God wants uh, committed lives from us as we obey Him. Our lives will be rewarded and be better. So I want to encourage each of you to uh, just contemplate, ask the Lord, Lord, what is it that I need to release to you that I can more fully commit to my walk with you and you'll see that reward if this if you're a guest with us or if you prayed for the first time to receive the Lord we want to invite you to stop on the way out on the left side on our welcome counter we have gifts for you and we'd love to chat with you uh, also we'd uh, like to invite you to join us on the patio for coffee and donuts afterwards and also be thinking and praying about who you'd like to invite next Sunday with you to church. We'll see you next Sunday. God bless.